Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world. One thing that remains constant is how much things change. Take the Olympics, for example. What began in the 5th century BC as a religious festival honoring the Greek god Zeus, today is a secular competition among nations. We have a pageant and patriotic anthems. But this year, religion is getting a lot of attention for another reason. This week, we're taking a closer look at how religion is being discussed, expressed, and politicized at this year's Winter Olympic Games taking place in Beijing, China. A growing coalition of advocates are calling for boycotts of sponsors, including some athletes, citing religious persecution and human rights violations. To dive in and unpack this and much more, I caught up with religion reporter Kelsey Dallas from Salt Lake City, Utah. Kelsey Dallas, thank you for joining us on Inspired. It's good to have you back. Yes, I'm so happy to be back. And for our listeners who may not recognize your voice, tell us where in the world they will find you and where they can read your Wonderful writing about religion. I am a religion reporter for the Deseret News that's based in Salt Lake City, although we cover national issues. So you write a weekly column, is that right? Is it weekly or monthly? Weekly. It comes out on Monday nights, a newsletter about the state of faith in the U.S. And it's one of my favorite reads. I keep it in a folder just when I need to like get a scan of what's going on, and I always appreciate your insights. And you have been covering religion for how long now? Almost eight years. Tell us why you find this beat to be your home. It started as sort of a personal calling where I knew the importance of religious activity and religious people in my own life, especially in my younger years as I was growing up. And so then when I went to college and grad school and really got into the academic study of religion, it was just so exciting to be able to learn about that same influence at work in other people's lives. And so it's really been a gift to take that love of experiencing religion and studying religion and transform it into writing about religion. And so it, it really has been um, this this love of my life that I have dove into. I can hear it in your voice. You like to dive into the questions about faith and practice and the way things are changing. And that which brings us to why we're talking today. This coming week, we're going to have the beginning of a spectacle. I like to call it a spectacle because it is the Olympics. Um, I remember growing up, sitting around the, you know, the television. It was a big event in my household growing up. I'm curious, like, what is your favorite Olympic memory? Oh, the one that stands out to me the most is, I believe it was 2008 when Michael Phelps was making a big push to win the most gold medals at a single Olympics. It was sort of the height of his career. 
and I can just remember basically every single one of his races standing and watching, screaming my head off with friends. It just brings me so much joy to think about that moment in my life and also that moment in American athletics. It's interesting that you say that there is this like almost civil religion quality to the Olympics, which is kind of funny when you think about the history of the Olympics, which started off itself as a religious festival. Yes, I feel like my memories of watching the games has always felt as uh, religious as attending a confirmation ceremony or a baptism, that there were all these specialized rituals involved, both in individual athletic events, but especially in the opening and closing ceremonies. But when I've done more research and done some reading about this, I was uh, tickled and amazed to realize just how religious the roots of the games were. And that's not evident watching it today. I mean, it may have these spiritual or religious aspects, but you don't feel like, oh, wow, this began as sort of a religious activity unto itself. Right, with offerings to Zeus. I mean, I, I was listening to a couple of historians talk about the, the the pageantry and the religious festivals that took place around the Olympics. It is quite amazing because you wouldn't know it from watching them today. Today, it takes on that, as you, I think, are describing well, like the pageantry. And it has this nationalistic quality to it. So there's a civil and civic kind of pride that people feel. And there's a lot of religion still today in the Olympics. It just doesn't look the way it did at its founding. Yes, I think a through line is probably that individual athletes feel as if their own performance, they owe their performance, they owe their talents and gifts and athletic strengths to God or gods that they pray to. Um, you, you still see today that athletes are crossing themselves or doing some other religious symbol at the end of, and the beginning of their competition. But what, what's interesting to think about is that in the past, the entire games were seen as some sort of um, gift to the gods or a celebration of the gods. Whereas today, as you mentioned, the games feel much more like a political event or a diplomatic event or a patriotic event. You've touched on this in one of your recent newsletters. Um, I think when you were looking at the Summer Olympics, what did you find? Were there any particular practices that stood out to you? Yes, definitely. I think that an athlete's religious upbringing and religious practices can give shape and offer comfort in their training routines and then their competitions. And so you can see that um, in interviews that athletes give about their preparation for the Olympics, where one of the uh, gymnasts from the summer games that we just saw had talked about how her dad was helping her prepare by actually giving her specific prayers to think about or prayers to say during the Olympics games and in the lead up to her competitions. And I mean, it's it's very clear that athletes of all stripes are involved in that type of uh, game-centric religious behavior because athletes are, as I mentioned, crossing themselves, praying, they're giving thanks after their uh, performances. And that's that's expected if you watch sports in general, that, that you see little uh, tidbits of people's religious practices coming up at all moments of competition. Do you think that athletes who uh, are practicing a particular faith tradition, do you think that that spirituality and religious practice gives them a competitive edge? 
I think that it does in the sense that it can really help with your mental health and your grounding as a person, that you feel more centered, perhaps. You don't feel as if your life all comes down to the outcome of this one race or event, that there's something bigger out there that you need to stay focused on or care about. Now, I will mention that I think that there are ways for non-religious or not as religiously active athletes to sort of get that same edge just by working with a, a sports psych psychologist or just thinking more about how they can build out parts of their life that have nothing to do with the game. So I don't mean to say that religious athletes edge can't be met by other factors, but I do think it, it is incredibly valuable to those athletes who take faith very seriously. I hear what you're saying. And I'm wondering if you think faith could potentially be misused by athletes, something along the lines of if I practice nonstop, then, you know, God will reward me with a gold medal. Have you, have you stumbled I've, I've across that? I've seen that kind of thinking, but it was actually in the context of the NFL here in the U.S. I talked to chaplains for various teams about what types of prayers they offer to those teams and what types of prayers they're asking football players to sort of focus on. And all of them have talked about how it's important not to pray really for a win, not to pray for the perfect day, just to pray that uh, God gives you sort of a uh, the, the confidence and strength to go out there and, and use your gifts to the best of your ability. So I don't know if that's making sense, but what I'm trying to say is that it's not that you would pray for a win. It's just that you would pray to enjoy every moment and live each moment to the fullest. Because if you tie God's support too closely to the outcome of the event, that can be really detrimental both to your career and to your spiritual life, because you would feel like God abandoned you if you tripped or if you weren't able to finish the race. I'm not a theologian, but it sounds a lot like the thinking in some prosperity gospel theology, that if you are prosperous and you are able to generate a certain amount of wealth, that is a sign of um, of providence. That's a sign of blessing. It sounds like you're saying there's similarly, like, there's some, some pitfalls to that kind of what some would describe, I think, is like, uh, you know, rabbit foot theology. Pray to win and, and you hold on to it. And if it doesn't happen, then it speaks to something much larger, something much deeper. Right. I believe chaplains, certainly in the NFL context, but I'm guessing those that work in the context of the Olympic Games are trying to help athletes focus on the process rather than the outcome, focus on how their faith can help them uh, persevere in difficult moments or feel calm when they're feeling anxious or stressed out, rather than saying, okay, your prayer gives you a leg up because you can get God to care about which medal you receive. Mm. All of this kind of begs the question. This year's Winter Olympics are taking place in China, um, a communist country that has taken a very hard line when it comes to religion and religious practice. Let's talk about what individual religious practice looks like for these athletes. How is faith practice rituals and rites? How is it accommodated typically at the Olympics? I believe in the case of most games, there has been an effort to connect the athletes with various chaplains, various faith leaders to ensure that they have that spiritual support that they would be able to get easily at home during their training. But first at the Tokyo Games last summer, and then now in Beijing this month, the the problem is that if you have a very strict COVID bubble, if you need to stay within the confines of your own um 
Olympic Village and then the competition grounds, you don't have a chance to go meet with a Catholic priest or attend an evangelical worship service on the Sunday mornings that you're in Beijing. And so you really have to build up a virtual support system. And I think that for most athletes, that would be pretty personalized where they would be able to talk to their own spiritual advisor or faith leader on their own time. In Tokyo, there was an effort to connect the athletes to local religious leaders with streaming worship services. So the Catholic Archdiocese of Tokyo was able to try to broadcast services, but it's an incredibly different situation than a typical Olympic Games where the athletes would have a little bit more freedom to check out the local religious landscape, to visit houses of worship, and to take that time away in an actual physical church to pray or meditate. It's not the only controversy, though, in China when it comes to religion. If we take a step back from individual practice, the country itself has been uh, criticized heavily for its persecution of religious minorities. It's an avowed atheist country. But specifically around the Olympics, what are some of the headlines that have caught your attention where activists and advocates and even the athletes are getting involved? Yes, there have been many red flags waved about the optics of hosting the games in China and putting this spotlight on China at a time when their human rights record is uh, horrifying to behold. Anytime I interview someone about the situation of religious freedom or human rights around the world, China is basically the first country they mention, um, most notably because of the treatment of Uyghur Muslims within um one of the country's regions, that there has been forced imprisonment of Uyghur Muslims, that there has been efforts to re-educate them or put them in forced labor camps because of the government's concern about their ethnicity and their religious practice, their allegiance to Islam. But just in general, China gets very nervous about religious activity and tries to keep a close eye on all sorts of uh, different faith groups. So I have seen messages that are specific about Christians in China as well. And just the idea that many Christians in China feel like they need to keep their religious activity hidden and participate in underground churches, that it feels like you can't worship out in the open or else you'll be faced with some tricky questions, if not limitations on other parts of your social life. The global awareness about persecution, and particularly, as you were mentioning, the Uyghur Muslims um, in the autonomous region, the, the combination of disappearances, detentions, the raising and uh, essentially destruction of mosques, uh, the disappearance of, of whole families. I will say that one thing that has um, really struck me is that even now athletes who aren't part of the community, they aren't Uyghur themselves, are using their platform to raise awareness about that level of persecution. Put that in some sort of context. Is this the first time religious persecution has come into kind of focus around the Olympics? Well, we did have this situation in, I believe, 1936, where the Nazi regime in Germany was already rising to power, and that was when Berlin hosted the Olympics. One of the talking points as people have pushed back against Beijing 
hosting this year's Olympics is that the the U.S. really flubbed it back then in 1936 that we went ahead with our participation. Uh, we put sort of a, a stamp of approval of what was happening under the Nazi regime, um, at least when it came to the games. And it really gave the Nazi regime an out on some of their worst behavior that said, see, all these countries are still willing to partner with us. They're still willing to come here and send their athletes and celebrate what we're up to. And it really undermined efforts to uh, change the behavior in that country in the years that followed and to protect the Jewish community and others. And so I think that that's what many religious freedom advocates are worried about today is that if we move forward and treat the Beijing games as if everything is hunky-dory, as if we can get along with Chinese officials just fine, that we're basically saying, yeah, they're doing some iffy things with Uyghur Muslims. They're maybe not nice to Christians, but we still think they did an awesome job with this Olympics. And so I think many people are incredibly frustrated that we would at all behave as if the game should go on as planned. You know, as you kind of t- talk about and reflect on that history, the normalizing of an administration, the U.S. government, we should say, has made a determination or decision to do a diplomatic boycott. And and what does that mean for folks who may not be familiar with that? Yes, that is a very important move for the Biden administration. That means that uh Diplomats from the country, high-level officials will not be taking part in the games. They won't be there on the sidelines cheering on American athletes, which would typically be part of the Olympic ceremonies. And it explains why both of us talked about uh, thinking of the Olympics as not just an athletic event, but a diplomatic or political event. So that does signal that the U.S. is treating this differently or thinking of this differently. And around the time the Biden administration announced the diplomatic boycott, Congress um, passed a bipartisan law that's going to limit the import of goods from China because of the treatments of Uyghur Muslims. So uh, certainly the U.S. is trying to crack down on this alongside other countries, but we have stopped short of pulling out our athletes, certainly, and even sort of forcing companies to reconsider sponsorships or media organizations reconsidering sending people. So the diplomatic boycott is important, but I think that many religious freedom advocates are asking for more. In January, one of the Olympic team members from the U.S., Timothy LeDuc, did speak out about human rights violations in China just hours after he had secured a spot on the skating delegation. And that was significant because until that point, athletes had really danced or tiptoed around the issue out of fear of of sort of putting the spotlight on themselves and maybe not being able to go to China because of dangers that, that their statements brought about. And I do worry about that when we look at coverage of the Olympics over the next couple of weeks. I, if you want each individual athlete to speak out about these issues in press conferences, you have to be aware that that would potentially put themselves in danger within um, the country when they're in China China for the games. And so I've heard other folks suggesting that instead of really putting the impetus with the athletes, that it should be media organizations or reporters like myself as we cover individual events and outcomes, trying to raise awareness of human rights violations in our articles from the safety of wherever we're writing or recording those pieces.
that is a really striking point. The idea that the that those who are telling the story need to be providing the context so the onus isn't on the athletes themselves. But let's say the athletes themselves do choose to use the microphone while they are in Beijing to, to talk about and criticize the host country. What do you think China would do? Is there really a risk with this many eyes watching with this much accountability? I believe that you are right to point out why would China choose to do something when the backlash would be so huge. But there have already been warnings about uh, athletes needing to bring burner phones, for example, because of the long tail that might follow their their visit to China and their participation in this games. And so I don't think that American officials or officials from anywhere are putting it past China uh, to be up to no good, uh, even during this moment when all eyes from around the world are on their country. There will be ramifications of some form. And it's just a matter of whether government officials and athletic leaders can anticipate that and help protect the athletes. Mm. The other point I'd like to raise is about what we expect from our athletes at this highly pressurized moment in their athletic career. So we, of course, want them to be ambassadors for our country and to represent us well and to also represent our commitment to not just religious freedom, but all sorts of human rights in their own actions, in the statements that they make, and to stand up for the vulnerable, as, as hopefully our government leaders do in their own interactions. But I I just wonder if it's it's asking too much of these mostly young men and women who are sort of dealing with already enough stress that comes from performing at such a high level and such a a stage. I don't mean to say that they should be excused from taking a stand or excused from studying up on what it means to be in China at this moment or to take part in this particular Olympics, but I do have some sympathy for just all the different balls that each athlete will have in the air. Yeah. No, I appreciate you pointing that out. You went to an event recently organized by the Heritage Foundation online just a few days ago. Tell me what you saw and what you heard. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. I was just going to mention that I had heard Boston Celtics Center Ennis Cantor Freedom speak during that Heritage Foundation event, and he has been incredibly outspoken on this issue, calling for more ramifications against China, calling for the games to be moved or canceled even at this late hour. You know, to me, diplomatic boycott is good. Obviously, it shows something, but it is not enough. You know, I feel like all the athletes out there needs to needs to say, you know, enough is enough. You know, this is bigger than sports. I think Representative call it genocide games, and I call it the medal of shame. You know, all the gold medals in the world that you can win is not more important than your morals, your principles, and your values. He went so far as to say that athletes should really do some soul searching and decide whether they want to be associated with this games, whether it's not better to uh, drop out, to stay home and to spend their time speaking out against what's going on in China instead of um, competing as an individual and maybe act, uh, unintentionally putting a stamp of approval on what's happening. Now, I, I've been really wrestling with his call to action for athletes because in many cases, these athletes basically only have one or two games where they will be at their peak athletic performance and all these different 
situations will come to a head where they will make it onto an Olympic team and be able to compete. And so it seems almost cruel to ask them to give up that opportunity. But on the other hand, it seems cruel to let the games go on as normal when many, many people are suffering because of their faith in China. As always, it is a pleasure to talk to you, Kelsey. Hope to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. Kelsey Dallas covers religion, politics, and the Supreme Court for the Deseret News and serves as associate editor of Deseret News National. Coming up after the break, we travel out to North Carolina to meet a lay Buddhist minister who is part of a growing movement inviting the living to contemplate what it means to have a good death. Stay with us. friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, we're exploring change, how beliefs influence how we approach events and rituals. We now turn from the Olympics to a story by reporter Jess Ingerbretson, who takes us to Western North Carolina to explore how one woman's journey, confronting illness and suffering, led her to build a community that offers people of all faiths and no faith a new way of approaching death. On a sunny October morning in North Carolina, two men are digging a grave. The men dig by hand, peeling off sweaters and long-sleeved shirts as they work up a sweat. 
After a few hours, the shovel hits rock. They switch to a pickaxe. If you want to take a break, I'll knock on these rocks. The men heap the excavated earth beside the grave in three piles. It takes the men about five hours to dig a three-foot-deep grave. When they fill it later in the day, they'll work backwards. Clay in first, then topsoil, and finally the leaf debris. The process ensures that the burial disrupts the ecosystem as little as possible. It also speeds the body's decomposition, nourishing the surrounding plants and animals. This is the burial process at the Carolina Memorial Sanctuary, a conservation burial ground in western North Carolina. We're in a culture that doesn't look at death and doesn't hold it. This is Caroline Young, the founder and director of the sanctuary. For 20 years, she's been working to open up conversations about death and dying in the Asheville area. Helping people look at their beliefs, their spiritual practices, to pick and design the way they want to die and the way they want their body to be recycled or cared for after death. Caroline is in her 60s, with close-cut gray hair and a no-nonsense manner. She spends much of the day outdoors and dresses the part. Khaki cargo pants, sturdy shoes, and a knit cap to ward off the morning chill. You might not guess that she's also a minister in the Soto Zen tradition. So one of the things that we had to do in order to become a lay minister was to pick a Buddhist topic to become proficient at. And mine is death and dying. Carolina Memorial Sanctuary, 11 acres of woods and wetland, is the culmination of that work. The goal is to give North Carolinians an alternative way to experience dying, eco-friendly and community-oriented. The place used to be a dairy farm, and the land was in rough shape when Caroline bought it in 2015. She and her colleagues have worked to root out invasive species, support native plants, and rebuild fragile ecosystems. All right, then. So, Stephen, it's supposed to rain tomorrow, so... When the gravediggers finish, Caroline gathers the sanctuary staff in a clearing to touch base. There's a burial the next morning, and the weather forecast is iffy. Time to talk logistics. Do you think since it's only two of them, the 10 by 10? Will it cover both the graves, do you think? Should. Yeah, I think that's fine. Rain isn't just an inconvenience. Wet soil slows the body's decomposition. At the sanctuary, these details matter. The goal is to return the body's nutrients to the land. The green approach means that embalming is out. Shrouds and coffins are welcome, says operations director Cassie Barrett, if they're eco-friendly. You don't want anything to be toxic or harmful, so there's a lot of mindfulness about the materials you use. For example, we wouldn't want to use a coffin or casket that has used polyurethane over the wood or any sort of um, harmful chemical or varnish like that. Families often prepare their loved one's bodies for burial at home and bring them to the sanctuary bundled in the back of a car. Staff dig and fill the graves by hand, and mourners are welcome to help out. After the huddle... Caroline and Stephen head across the creek to the sanctuary's office, an old shipping container, to check supplies. Inside are shovels, pickaxes, and rows of bamboo urns for cremated remains. Big ones are for humans, smaller ones for pets. Caroline selects two for upcoming burials. 
Hey, busy. I can, yes. Caroline's phone rings a lot. Sometimes the person on the other end wants to tour the burial ground. Sometimes they have a question about how the sanctuary works. And sometimes they're calling about a recent death. So, oh, your brother, this is for your brother. Oh, gosh. This caller is planning to bury cremated remains. She has questions about the cost and payment options. You know, what I can do, Busy, is send you an invoice, and you can pay it online. For Creekside, it's $1,300. The meadow is 1200 and then the um, woodlands is 1100 Did you you have any sense of which area you liked? Caroline grew up Presbyterian in Florida and bounced around Gainesville's party scene in her teens and early 20s. Death work wasn't part of her life plan. Then one summer, she got a job at an outdoor recreation company in western North Carolina. At the end of the summer, she stayed. I was in that area for 15 years, and um, being in the mountains and... Not having the city life, the the drugs, the all that kind of stuff that was available in Gainesville, and I don't know. That's where I felt like I grew up. Life in the mountains was quiet. Caroline and her friends learned to make their own fun. You couldn't get to the movies. You couldn't get to town. There's nothing going on. So if, if somebody was doing something, we'd want to go hear it. When a Buddhist teacher passed through, Caroline was curious. She went to the talk. And the message was that I was responsible for my own suffering, that I could do something about it. And that intrigued me. I could work with that. Um, Instead of relying on a higher power, I could do these incremental things that would lessen my suffering. Caroline hadn't practiced meditation. But when the visiting teacher mentioned a 10-day retreat, she decided to try it out. And on the first day... My mind started going, what the hell are you doing here? The retreat was austere. Caroline sat cross-legged in meditation most of the day, every day, facing a blank plywood wall. She paid attention to her breath. She noticed the thoughts and feelings that popped up. It wasn't easy. So we're sitting in meditation, and I felt like I was going to faint. So I didn't pay attention to that. And then my mind started making up these stories. My leg was also falling asleep. So my mind says, it's like, I just envisioned this hysterical woman, you know, with her hair crazed and always fearful. And so she says to me in my mind, your leg's falling asleep. You need to get up. And I didn't move. And then she said, I said, your leg's falling asleep. If you stand up now, you're going to fall down. You're going to hit your head and you're going to crack your head open you're going to bleed to death so everything led to death and so the bell rang and I got up that was day one when Caroline sat down again the fear sat with her and so the next meditation here she comes again we need to get out of here this is just stupid what are you doing here and so she identified my numb leg again and she said your leg is you're going to get gangrene They're going to have to cut your leg off. You know, it was this hysterical kind of craziness. So then that's when the faint came. Then since those two didn't work, then then I started feeling faint. So I asked the teacher, I'm feeling faint during meditation. And she says, well, she had only had one person faint and the woman was pregnant. She says, invite yourself to faint. So here she comes, the mind, and she tells me about my leg again. We need to leave. 
And she says, you're about to faint. And I said, bring it on. She did faint. That's when things got really weird. I was aware of every part of the faint. I was watching me faint. And so I was aware that I was falling forward. My head hit the the piece of plywood. There was a uh, kind of a rattling of the plywood. And then I heard the rustling in the room, and they came over and picked me up, and my mind was going, you need to lay me down so I can level my blood out. Don't lift me up or I'm going to faint again. This was all going on while it was all happening. So I witnessed the faint, which was profound to me. It wasn't a blackout, because there was a witness. So this greater witness was there. And if I can tap into the greater witness, that's the observer of everything that's happening, there's a strength and stability there that I can rest in that. That faint showed Caroline that she didn't have to let fear control her. That's how she warmed up to Buddhism. By the early 90s, she'd moved to Asheville and joined a Buddhist community of practice, a Sangha. Then, one of the Sangha members died. The group didn't have much experience with Buddhist death traditions, so Caroline's teacher asked her to do some research. When she asked me to learn how to take care of the dead body after death... It was a turning point for me. I couldn't go anywhere to train, so I had to figure that out. I had to study it. And uh, so I did. In the end, Caroline led her sangha through that first funeral. With practice, she got more comfortable. She studied the Tibetan book of living and dying. She read the work of 11th century Buddhist teacher Atisha. When friends of sangha members died, she helped prepare their bodies for burial. But death work didn't always translate, even in offbeat Asheville. Caroline remembers some parties she went to. And people are drinking and they're milling around, which I hated to go to those things. And then, you know, because it goes to, well, what do you do? And I'd start saying it, and then they'd glaze over and go, oh my God, what is she talking about? How can I get away from this person? But others outside of the sangha were more curious than fearful. It helped that Caroline worked a day job at a hair salon. As she snipped and angled and blow-dried, she had a captive audience. So for three hours, they'd have to listen to me tell them what I was doing. So then some of those people, you know, knew of someone who just died. They'd call me. You know, maybe Caroline has a different way we can do this. Soon she was working with people of all faiths and no faith. She showed friends how to wrap a shroud, how to keep a body cool. She listened to their fears. What I realized was that people were unprepared for death. Almost everybody was unprepared for death. That realization led her to begin teaching classes with names like Preparing for Your Own Good Death and Life and Home Funeral Training. Caroline actually pretended to have died on her couch. This is Gabriel Intan, a hospice nurse who took Caroline's home funeral training a few years ago. The work began with Caroline's death. As instructed, he and his classmates looked around for her written wishes. Her documents were in the freezer um, with a little magnet reminder. Uh, It said, like, matters of life and death inside. (laughs) Matters of life and death were not new to Gabriel. But he was used to death in a medical context. This experience was inside Caroline's home, with a kettle boiling on the stove and the teacher stretched out on the couch. They 
had recommended, you know, leaving her body um, for an hour where it was, and then um, where she had wanted to go was in their meditation room. So um, the uh, people mover, it's like a giant sling that several people could put under her, and then the process of washing her body and preparing the massage table where she would lie in state. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Audio reporter Jess Ingerbretson continues her story about Carolyn Young, the founder and director of the Carolina Memorial Sanctuary, a conservation burial ground located in western North Carolina. Let's get back to the story. After it was all over... Caroline got up and rejoined the world of the living. Apart from that key detail, the run-through was a lot like the real thing. Last fall, Gabriel and his husband Eric Iverson put that training into practice when their housemate Yvette died. She had wanted to die at home with her wife and friends, and she did, in her own bed. The experience that, you know, everyone was there in the bed with her was really... um, Unique. I hadn't done anything like that before, but it it seemed exactly what she wanted, like to be in the bed that she had lived and slept in. And it was pretty special to be able to make that happen. Gabriel's a pianist, and we have a piano right outside Yvette's room. So he sat down on the piano, and it became really peaceful, and Yvette opened her eyes and... The heavy breathing that had been happening um, stopped, and there was just kind of a moment of calm. Within an hour or so, she she had died. Yvette is buried at the sanctuary on a small hill overlooking a creek. She was Puerto Rican and practiced Santeria. The river goddess Oshun was important to her. Her wife thought she'd like this spot, in view of the water. Eric dug the grave by hand. At the burial, her family and friends placed her body inside and helped fill the space. First clay, then topsoil, then the crumbly humus. These days, burials are staff member Cassie Barrett's favorite part of the job, now that she's learned how to be with grieving families. And Caroline has been such an amazing teacher for me because she's so good at just meeting people where they're at. You know, when I first started doing this work, it's really scary. You're like dealing with a body and families and grief and, you, you know, you want to do the right thing. And like, what do I say and what do I do? Cassie's not a Buddhist, but she says the sanctuary's spiritual grounding has shaped her own outlook. When you're really doing this work, And I mean, like, at the burial, not like when I'm on the computer (laughs) checking emails. (laughs) But when you're at a burial or something, like, you really step outside of yourself. There's no self anymore. You're really, like, there with, in that moment, serving these people. And I, honestly, my heart's not, it's never happier than those moments. Caroline says the key is being open to whatever form grief takes. I have the capacity to sit with this kind of fear and this kind of um, suffering and uh, not to take it on. I think that's the key, is to not take it on. That it will, uh, it'll have a life to it. 
it'll come and go, but it's not permanent. It, the grief might be permanent, but the waves of it will be varied. Caroline earned this knowledge of grief the hard way. In the early 2000s, she was settled in Asheville. She felt she'd found her life's work, teaching people there about death and dying. She fell in love, married her partner, and helped raise his two young sons. But something wasn't right. On our wedding day, I realized I was quite ill. It was was very, very, very difficult. My uh, doctor didn't even want me to walk around the block or climb stairs and because uh, was, I was close, so fatigued. And my husband didn't believe I was sick. So, and he couldn't understand it and didn't want to understand it. Caroline says her husband asked her to choose between her work and her marriage. And I made the choice and uh, I decided to leave. So that was a very, very difficult. It was probably the hardest thing in my life. And... Um, Because I love those little boys. And, um, you know, and I love my husband. But I knew that I couldn't give up my spiritual practice for that. Her practice helped what she calls a brutal recovery from the end of that marriage. There was a greater knowing that I had the strength and capacity to do that, and I was going to survive, and I was going to be even bigger on the other side. It's going to be even safer and cleaner and whatever you want to say on the other side. But it was like ripping your skin off to get there. And I think that some people, you know, get stuck in that despair and the despair wins. And um, there was huge despair. But I had practices. You know, I knew it wasn't going to, nothing is permanent. I knew I was not going to be in that situation. It was not permanent. Whatever mental state I was in, emotional state I was in, it was not permanent. Nothing is permanent. As if to honor change, she turned to building the sanctuary. Caroline had thought about starting a green burial ground for years. Now it was time. I don't have a background in land management. I don't have a background in conservation. I only have a background about stepping through fear. She sold her house and used the money to buy a beat-up dairy farm, 11 acres of wetland and forest tucked up against a swath of soybean fields. The land was a mess, but she had a vision, a place by the river for people to grieve, native plants, a mix of wetland and woodland. She got the land legally protected from future development. And bit by bit, Caroline and the staff are starting to translate vision into mud, rocks, and seeds. In addition to a place for this holding grief and burial, it also is a place to uh, rejoice and to reflect. There's benches around the sanctuary, and because you're sitting by graves, you know, you're reminded that that could be me one day. And I think in that reminding, people have a tendency to be uh, kinder because we don't know if this is the last time we're going to see somebody, if this is the last thing I'll say to them. On a windy October morning, Caroline has a tour scheduled. We meet Patricia Johnson in the parking lot. She's enthusiastic in sneakers and a purple turtleneck, gray hair braided. She's thinking about green burial for herself. The three of us climb into an electric golf cart 
and Caroline's little white dog wriggles onto Patricia's lap. How'd you hear about us? That's Jasper. Are you okay with him laying on you? All right. We set off into the pines, gravel crunching under our wheels. Red sumac and blackberry line the path. Patricia has questions about cremation. But if I'm being scattered, I'm not going to have an urn. You won't have an urn, no. Hmm. So, and for scattering, though, we need to have your ashes four months before any service that happens. Toward the end of the tour, we pass a grassy spot not too far from the woodland path. That's where Caroline will be buried, alongside her cat and dog. I believe that when the body's dying, there's a part of me that's going to be aware of what's happening. And that part has been trained to know what to do. That if fear arises, if the small part of the mind is experiencing pain or suffering or whatever, the greater mind will be able to say, this is what you're experiencing. The elements are dissolving. This is normal. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. That greater knowing can calm down the smaller mind that is freaking out, if it freaks out. And I know enough about death now, what will happen, to be able to talk myself through it. And I have practices to support me if that should weaken, you know. And I've got lots of people, if people can be contacted, who can also guide me. But should I die alone in a place where I'm not found for a while, can I be my own guide? And I believe the answer is yes. It'll be a while, Caroline hopes, because she still has plenty of plans for the sanctuary. She wants to be there to see it grow. But if she isn't, she's all right with that. For The Spiritual Edge, I'm Jess Ingebretson. Jess Ingebretson is an independent journalist based in New York City. In 2009, she was awarded a Watson Fellowship to spend a year exploring radio and reconciliation in post-conflict societies around the world. Inger Bretzen produced this story for The Spiritual Edge in collaboration with the USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Cheryl Duvall is the Sacred Steps editor, Tarek Fauda is the engineer, and Judy Silver, executive editor. That's all for this week's show. Our producer this week was Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. If you missed any portion, you can stream at interfaithradio.org, where you can also subscribe to the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices wherever you listen. And while you're there, leave us a review. It helps others find us. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well. And I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week.